United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a really thoughtful show for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Today, I'll unfortunately need to lead off with some news that has saddened not only those of us at South of Two Degrees, but also the climate community around the world. Professor Conrad Steffen, who was the world's foremost authority on the Greenland ice sheet and sea level rise, unfortunately passed away in a tragic accident on August 8th. Now, Dr. Steffen was visiting a camp he had founded 30 years ago this year in Greenland and fell into a crevasse and drowned. According to his friend and former student, Dr. Ryan R. Neely, this type of crevasse was, quote, unheard of prior to deglaciation, but it started popping up as the climate has warmed. Now, Dr. Stefan was a giant in the climate world, and while he didn't do sexy research, if you will, his work was invaluable as he measured the ice sheet and set up and maintained a network of monitoring stations all across the island. As a result of his insights, he was the first to sound the alarm about the melting ice sheet on Greenland and the devastating effects it could have. So to honor his memory and his contribution to climate science, today's show is all about Greenland, its ice sheet, and where it's headed. Now before we dive into what's happening in Greenland, let's do a quick crash course on glaciology. While I have never had the honor of meeting Dr. Stefan, I've had the honor to spend more than a few days in the backcountry with the most knowledgeable person I know when it comes to glaciers, and that is a gentleman and a dear friend by the name of Kevin Sean. No, he isn't a climatologist, rather a professional mountain guide for the American Alpine Institute, and likely has more days on glaciers than most glaciologists, if I'm being honest. Personally, I think he was born on one, but I've never gotten him to admit it. But come to think of it, he hasn't denied it either. Anyway, everything I know about glaciers comes from his wisdom, and I'll just put it like this. If you were stuck in a crevasse and completely snowblind, he is the one person I would trust to know glaciers well enough to get me out without a scratch. And while I know I'll likely get a phone call as soon as this show is over telling me I should have explained some other bit... I'm going to risk it and attempt to pass on his knowledge before we look into our paper today in Greenland. On a base level, a glacier is just a persistent body of dense ice that moves under its own weight. Sure, it can look like frozen river and make sounds that you either dream of or have nightmares about, depending on where your tent is, actually. But all in, it's just that. Snow falls in an accumulation zone or an area called a neve, and this is the region that feeds the glacier. Now, ablation is how a glacier loses its ice through evaporation, sublimation, and melting. The ablation zone, then, is the spot on the glacier where the annual loss exceeds the annual gain. When large chunks of ice break off the image many of us think of when we imagine a glacier, this is just a form of ablation and is referred to as calving. Now, there are nothing short of a plethora of terms when it comes to glaciers, like 
Bergschrins, which can be massive obstacles that are sometimes impossible for mountaineers to get past. However, I have seen Kevin move across them like you were simply walking through a wheat field. And Seracs, which can be flat out deadly. In fact, one of the most famous ones is called the Bottleneck and is responsible for 13 of the last 14 deaths on K2. But for today's show, we're more concerned with Glacier's mass balance and how that changes over time. Mass balance of a glacier takes into account both density and depth and is simply the balance between accumulation and ablation. Mass balance can be measured either at minimums or on a specific day each year, and either are fine for our knowledge base today. Now, a glacier with a positive mass balance has accumulated more than it has ablated, and the opposite is true for a glacier with a negative mass balance. With this in mind, the mass balance should be positive in the neve and negative in the ablation zone. However, the key indicator to the health of a glacier is the equilibrium line, or rather the line at which the mass balance is net zero. In a growing glacier, this line will move downslope over time and conversely will move upslope over time in a retreating glacier. Now, why do glaciers move? Well, the simple answer is gravity and a large mass with more potential energy pushing from the top to an area with less mass due to ablation at the bottom. But in a little more specifics, it's helped along the way by two different actions. The first is basal sliding. At the very bottom of the glacier is a lubricating layer of water or sometimes a thixotropic slurry of water and dirt. However, this can be significantly increased by surface meltwater flowing to the bottom of glaciers through holes called moulins. The second action is through a force imbalance at the calving front. Now, the action of mass loss through calving and thinning causes the glacier to be more buoyant, thus reducing frictional force and allowing the glacier to accelerate. Now, the final thing on basic glaciology is that it is not a linear flow. First and foremost, they can vary over the season. Secondly, however, when the movement is through a force imbalance, which isn't seasonally dependent, the glacier will accelerate, but it doesn't just all of a sudden slide out completely. Rather, it will accelerate and then decelerate as the mass pushing down on it lightens and will eventually reach a state of stasis. Then, depending on the following seasons, as well as the activity within the new accumulation zone, the glacier will either retreat more or sometimes even grow. Because of this back-and-forth motion on glaciers, it can be extremely difficult to determine their trending movement. Some of the folks that still have yet to accept anthropogenic climate change latch on to news that a glacier is increasing and use it as a counterpoint to warming. Anyone who uses a single year or two data point in their arguments this way obviously has not gained much knowledge of glaciers outside of a mainstream news story. What we and the climate scientists want to look for is a trend in the glacial front and a change in this day and age, usually a retreat, in the equilibrium line. Okay, so we good with the basics? Perfect. Now let's head over to Greenland as we discuss our research paper for the week titled Dynamic Ice Loss from the Greenland Ice Sheet Driven by Sustained Glacier Retreat, which was published seven days ago on the 13th of August 2020. Just a reminder, the link to the full paper is over on the citations page of southof2degrees.org. So let's kick this bit off with a look at the Greenland ice sheet. For starters, it covers 79% of Greenland, or 1.7 million square kilometers, and is the second largest ice sheet in the world, Antarctica holding the number one slot, and the ice sheet has been in existence to some degree or another for at least the last 18 million years. 
Now, you may be asking why you should care about Greenland, aside from the joke the Vikings played on the world, by calling a barren and ice-covered land Greenland and its geothermal paradise of a neighbor, Iceland. For starters, all that ice, and by all that I mean an estimated 2.85 million cubic kilometers of it, could raise the sea level 24 feet, which would devastate every coastal city in the world. How do you ask? Well, let's look at that cup of water on your desk. When you put a single ice cube in it, does the level go up? It sure does. But when that ice cube melts, despite part of it sticking out of the water, does the level go up again? No. And if you don't believe me, just pause me, drop a cube in the water, and see what happens by the end of the show. Now, I say this because there is an analogy to Greenland here. You see, all that ice we just talked about is currently sitting on land. And when that slides into the ocean, the water rises just as it did in your cup when you drop the ice cube in. But before you scream, holy crud, and start looking for arm floaties on Amazon, know there's a significant debate on when this could happen. Some scientists say between 2 and 3 degrees C of warming, others say more. But the consensus across the board is that it could happen a lot sooner than we had thought just 10 years ago. This, in turn, brings us back to the whole mass balance discussion we had earlier. So where does the mass balance of the Greenland ice sheet currently reside, and how has it changed recently? Well, that's what the brilliant scientists asked and researched in our paper today, so let's dive in. Now, up front, I should note that temporal and spatial data gaps exist prior to the year 2000, which does limit the resolution of this study. But studies of the glaciers has gone back several centuries, and from what has been found, much of the significant and rapid changes have happened within the past two decades, so it is still a viable and highly reliable study. The study broke the island, yes, Greenland is an island and Australia is a continent, but that's another discussion, into four major regions, namely the northwest, southeast, central west, and central east, and it found that discharges increased in every region since the 1980s, but with contrasting temporal variability. The central west is dominated by the Jakobshavn Glacier. Now, this glacier is significant as it singularly drains 6.5% of the entire Greenland ice sheet, produces 10% of all the icebergs that originate from Greenland, has been studied to various degrees for the last 250 years, and set the record for the fastest moving glacier ever recorded in 2012, moving at a blinding, well, not really, but fast for a glacier, 150 feet or 46 meters per day. So in the glacier world, Jakobshavn is kind of a big deal. Further, the study found that this single glacier accounted for 30% of the discharge of the entire region. As we discussed earlier, when you have a retreat in the calving front, you usually see an increase in acceleration. In fact, in 1999, the Jakobshavn glacier increased discharge, peaking at a 27% increase in 2014, before slowing by 10% through 2018. The small slowdown accounted for more than 75% of all discharge reduction in the region since the 1980s. In the northwest region, gradual discharge increases began around the year 2000 and has accelerated by 36% through 2018, where the central east remained relatively stable through both the 80s and 90s, and it wasn't until 2003 that things changed at which point, over the next two years, discharge increased by almost 20%, caused mostly by one of the dominating glaciers in the region. 
And yes, if you just noticed, I am skipping the name. Go read the paper if you want to pronounce it, but I'm not even going to try. Further, this rapid retreat was accompanied by a fourfold increase in thinning rates before abruptly ending when the glacial fronts temporarily stabilized. In the southeast, we see the mechanism yet again with synchronous retreat and acceleration through most of the region's glaciers. In fact, the study found that of a subset of 128 glaciers studied from 1985 through 2018, 70% followed the pattern of front position retreating and acceleration of discharge. So how does this all add up, you ask? Well, the study found, quote, the Greenland ice sheet-wide discharge is now approximately 14% greater than the rate observed during 1985 through 1999, following an observed step increase during the early 2000s. Widespread glacier retreat explains nearly all, or greater than 90%, of the observed multi-decadal variability in discharge, with an observed increase in discharge of 4 to 5% per every weighted mean kilometer of retreat, end quote. Now, the step increase they referenced there was no small increase, rather a 14% increase between the 1985 through 99 and 2007 through 2018 means. That equates to an increased discharge rate of 60 gigatons per year. Great, Brian. Now you're throwing out the whole gigaton thing again. Put it into terms I can understand, you say. Okay, well, think about it like this. A single gigaton of ice would cover the entirety of Central Park in New York City, but to a height of 1,100 feet. So 60 gigatons? Well, now you're talking that same base, but 12.5 miles high. And keep in mind, most airlines fly around 6 miles high, so twice that. And that is just the increase. The peak discharge came between 2017 and 2018 and was a whopping 502 gigatons per year, or 17% above the 1980s average, and it has been a fairly steady increase since 2007. Okay, so if we're shedding all that ice every year, what does it look like on the accumulation side? Well, unfortunately not good, I'm afraid. It doesn't take much to realize if you have an imbalance between the accumulating surface mass and the discharge mass, things are going to go downhill rapidly. And so to make up lost ground, the surface mass balance must be greater than the discharge. And sadly, it isn't. The paper found, quote, surface mass balance greater than two standard deviations above the 19-year 2000-2018 mean is required for the ice sheet to gain mass and is thus likely in a long-term state of persistent loss, end quote. Finally, it noted that, quote, markedly declined in assuming the post-2000 average surface mass balance, the annual probability of net ice sheet mass gain is now only approximately 1%. End quote. So the question is, have we passed a point of no return with the Greenland ice sheet? Well, according to the absolute latest science, it would appear so. Do you need to start looking at topographical maps for what will become beachfront property? No, not yet. Because that is where science is unsure. The rate which the Greenland ice sheet will continue to collapse is unknown. Glaciers are funny things, and we might get lucky and have a brief pause. But if we don't get our act together, well, let's just say maybe the best mountaineer I know should just take up swimming. 
And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you gained something from it and have an appreciation for all the work countless climate scientists have made regarding the dire condition of the Greenland ice sheet, but especially that of Dr. Conrad Steffen. And while I normally ask you to do three things over the next week, today I'll only ask one. Raise a glass to the memory of Dr. Steffen and know the show today is dedicated in his memory. Cheers, and I'll see you next week.